Hi class, welcome to Fundamentals Unit 7, Therapeutic Procedures. We'll first discuss the application of heat. Heat does many things. It promotes vasodilation, that is a widening of the blood vessels. It reduces muscle tension, increases capillary permeability, improves blood flow, enhancing oxygen delivery, nutrients, white blood cells, and antibodies to the site, promotes muscle relaxation, and reduces pain from spasm or stiffness. And it may increase edema. So this is the reason why when we fall and we sprain our ankles, we don't put heat because the ankle is most likely already, already swelling. And we don't want to cause more swelling to the area. So instead of heat, we use cold, but we'll get into that. Before the application of heat, look for any contraindications in your patients. Are they very young or very old? Do they have open wounds or active bleeding? Diminished sensation or elevated temperatures. These are all reasons why you would not want to apply heat. Use heat cautiously with inflammation, like I just talked about. It could cause a rupture. Note the area of the body, the neck, inside of the wrist, and the perineal area are more sensitive, okay? So these are the reasons why when someone's suffering from hypothermia, which is cold, we apply heat in these areas because the body's very sensitive in these areas to heat, which means it helps the body temperature to rise. Heat works well for arth arthritis, okay? Um, a lot of um, people with arthritis suffer with pain, so heat is good for pain. In addition to relaxing the muscles, it reduces joint stiffness by decreasing the viscosity of synovial fluid. So what that means is there is synovial fluid that surrounds joints. Um, you can think of any joint like the knees, the elbows, and these areas with people who suffer with arthritis are stiff and painful. And that's because the fluid is very thick. So whenever you hear that something is viscous, that means it's thick. So when we apply heat to these areas, it helps to thin out the viscosity of the fluid and makes the joints feel better. Be careful with moist heat. Check frequently. It burns quicker. Okay. Um, and we'll talk about that as well. Rationale for application of cold. It promotes vasoconstriction. So if vasodilation is an opening of the vessels, vasoconstriction is a closing up of the vessels. It provides local anesthetic effect. So basically it numbs the area so that you can't feel anything. It reduces muscle tension. It decreases blood flow, reducing inflammation and edema. So again, when we sprain our ankle and there's fluid there, we want to decrease that edema. We want to decrease the amount of fluid because that's going to restrict our movement and our range of motion. It helps to reduce pain and it reduces muscle pain and improves mobility. Okay. So assess con its chondroitin. Contraindicated with surgical wounds. It decreases circulation and slows healing. Also with edema, it decreases reabsorption. So um, 
It slows the healing down because you're putting cold there. So it's basically constricting the vessels. It's not bringing blood flow to the area and with blood flow brings nutrients. So basically with the cold, it's slowing down the healing process. So you don't want to use it for surgical wounds. Clients with vascular impairment, um, be careful in these patients as well for those reasons. And edema, it slows reabsorption, meaning um, that it, it slows down how fast the um, fluid's going to be reabsorbed back into the tissue. Assessment. For heat, assess underlying conditions of the skin. It's contraindicated in patients with CHF. PVD, CHF is congestive heart failure. PVD is peripheral vascular disease, diabetes, recent surgeries or injuries. So these are the patient populations where heat is contraindicated, okay? Because basically with this patient population, we want to reduce um, inflammation. So we want to use cold, Um so with cold, we assess for underlying conditions and it's contraindicated for open wounds. Okay. Methods of application. You can use the aquathermia pad and that's what we will see most often when we go to clinical. It's basically a pad that fills with warm water and it's operated from a little box. It has um, a plug or wires attached to it. And it slowly fills with water and it's at a controlled temperature uh, so the patient can't burn themselves. Uh, hot and cold packs, ice bags, ice gloves, and ice collars. There's compresses, soaks, sits baths, sponge baths, hyperthermia, um, and hypothermia blankets. And on slide six, you can see a picture of that aquathermia pad. Okay, it's important to note that with any type of heat application, we do need a doctor's order for it. Um, it's a little bit different with ice. You know, as soon as somebody falls and sprains an ankle or what have you, we can go get ice. But with heat, um, when we're in facilities, we do need a doctor's order. And usually you're giving it to your patients because they're having some type of a pain issue. Nursing care and patient safety. Therapy should only be administered for short intervals, 20 to 30 minutes max. Check on the client every 5 to 10 minutes. Monitor the skin for damage. Be aware of clients at risk and monitor closely. Client education about the therapy. Document the client's response to the therapy. So cold constricts, look for areas of pallor or cyanosis. So that means um, where it's gotten too cold, so the skin color is changing. Basically, it's turning pale or blue. Heat burns, so look for redness. Be sure to check the doctor's order. So um, the doctor's order is going to have how long you should apply it. It's going to have to what body part it should be applied to. So make sure you know. Clients at risk include those with neurosensory impairments, clients with diminished sensory or cognitive function, diabetic neuropathy, we talked about that in clinical, spinal cord injuries or altered level of consciousness, immobile clients that cannot move away 
from the heat or the cold. These patients you're going to want to monitor very, very closely um, just to make sure that uh, because they can't, these, these populations can't do it for themselves. So it's basically you. Bony prominences and metal implants increase the risk of burns with heat. The metal is kind of self-explanatory. You all know that metal heats up very quickly and bony prominences are at risk because basically there's not a lot to cushion the patient between the skin and the bones. Usually, you know, there's fat there or muscle tissue or something, but if it's over bony prominence, it's basically their skin and their bone. So you can see how that would cause skin breakdown. Cold therapy is inappropriate for clients with vascular impairments okay so when we talk about vascular impairments we're talking about any problem with the vein the venous system um, or the arterial system in the body um, so just be careful basically all of this is pointing back to the fact know your patient's diagnosis and uh, what's contraindicated and what you know is okay now we're going to talk about bandages and binders so the rationale and therapeutic effects of bandages, they are to support a limb or joint, support a wound or an incision, hold a pad to absorb drainage, hold a splint in place, hold a cold or warm pack in place, immobilize a joint or limb, maintain a limb in a specific position, provides compression to prevent contractures and a burn, shape a stump, promote venous return. So these are all reasons we would use bandages and different types of binders and you will come into contact with mostly all of these things um, here in the program. Bandages and binders, the term for evaluating the status of an extremity encased in a bandage is CSM, circulation, sensation, and movement. So we are to assess for the skin color, the temperature and capillary refill, okay? Sensation in the fingers, toes, um, can they feel you? Can they feel your hand touching their foot? Um, edema or swelling, sensations of pressure or tightness, do they feel any of these things? Distal pulses, okay? If they're not pulses, this is where I know I have personally instructed you a time when you want to use CSM. Okay, is there circulation, meaning the capillary refill? Can they feel your hands, which is a sensation? And then can they wiggle their finger or their toe, whatever um, extremity is compromised? And so if those things are present, if they're, you know, their skin is nice and warm and nice and pink and, you know, um, they can, they can feel and they can wiggle, then um, their circulation, sensation, and motion is there. So it's positive. CSM is how you would document that in a nurse's note. Bandages and binders. Um, there are roller bandages, which are ACE wraps. They can be elastic um, or cotton. They're used to wrap around a body part for support. When you're wrapping uh, ACE wraps, it's always distal to proximal. Any kind of wrap is always wrapped distal to proximal to increase the return and circulation. We're always trying to promote that blood flow to go back up to the heart. 
And when, especially when you're using an ace wrap, be careful not to stretch the bandage too far because you'll discover that it gets too tight on the extremity. Remember, after wrapping, you should always assess if you feel pulses, if the patient can wiggle their toe or their arm, wherever you've wrapped it, to make sure um, that it's not too tight. Slide 11 shows you how uh, to properly wrap an ace wrap and you can tell they're going up the leg. Bandages and binders on slide 12. Soft cotton elastic roller bandages. They may be different names in different facilities. That looks like a curl X to me. If you're AIDS, um, you recognize this bandage. And they're used to hold dressings in place. Um, so... We don't want to tape the patient's skin. We want to, if there's a four by four directly over a wound, then we might want to take a curl X or a thick cotton uh, roller bandage and wrap it around the wound and then tape the bandage instead of taping the patient's skin. There are a lot of patients out there with allergies to tape. So that's another thing you would want to be aware of are allergies. Specific therapies for elastic bandages. Um, you can see on slide 13, stretch net bandages. Um, we call those, I think those ones are just nets. There are other ones called tubi grip. Um, and they help to hold bandages in place. They come on a roll or in many sizes to use on all different types of body parts. On slide 14, you can see an example of anti-embolism stockings. Those of you who are AIDS know how difficult these stockings are to apply to patients. They should be applied first thing in the morning before the patient gets out of bed because once the patient um, puts their legs down, their feet down, and they start to walk around, then they're already um, getting dependent edema. Um, so we want to apply these stockings before they get out of bed. It's easier and it's the right thing to do. So this helps to uh, increase venous return. It helps with circulation. It helps to prevent phlebitis, which is an inflammation of the veins, and clot formation. Um, TED stockings is another name for them. It is something that I advise all of my students to get. They actually feel very, very comfortable on your legs. Some kind of a compression stocking as you start working as a nurse because um, we're on our feet all day. Um, and sometimes we're not walking, we're just standing because we're doing a lot of charting. And as we stand or as we sit in one place, we too can get dependent edema and, um, form blood clots. So it's best to have on some kind of support hose for your legs and they do feel really good. I suggest that for anyone who has to stand on their feet for long periods of time. Okay, for the patient, they actually get measured for stockings that are going to be the perfect fit for them. All right, uh, the proper way to apply them, you will notice little holes on these stockings right at the toes. That can be up or it can be down depending on 
um, what type of stocking your patient has. But um, what you would want to do is start to gather the um, stockings at the toes and try to pull them up all in one motion. Try to gather them together. There's no way you can just put the patient's toe in and start to pull from the top. Um, they won't go on like that, but they're very tight. Uh, it takes a little bit of muscle um, to get them on, but we will get a chance, hopefully, in clinical to apply stockings to a patient. Check circulation every two to three hours. Um, it says here that you can apply using powder or turn them inside out. I know there are little tricks of the trade that um, someone could show us how to do. I've never used powder um, to apply stockings. I just Put them on over the patient's toes. Remove them daily and reapply. So some patients may have a couple of different pairs. So, you know, to allow when one pairs in the laundry or what have you. But they do come off at bedtime because the patient's legs are up in the bed. So their swelling should decrease when they're laying in bed. And, of course, when they get out, swelling will start again. So these are going to be your patients with edema, the PVD, peripheral vascular disease, um, makes patients carry a lot of fluid in their legs. Diabetics uh, would also be candidates for these stockings. And then um, sometimes patients who are having issues with low blood pressure. I know we talk about high blood pressure a lot, but patients with low blood pressure might be prescribed TED stockings because again, it's promoting circulation back up to the heart, back up in circulation where it belongs because there's a problem with the veins and carrying too much fluid. But people with low blood pressure can't keep their pressures up. So TED stockings might help with that. Okay. And slide 15 shows you what an abdominal binder looks like. The binder is a wide, flat piece of fabric that is applied to support a body part or hold a dressing in place. It can also be used as a support. So um, you will see this on your patients that come from surgery. And underneath, a lot of times there's a bandage or something that is being held in place with the abdominal binder. These binders should be removed to... Uh, bathe the patient, and then they can be reapplied. Okay, so again, check your doctor's orders to make sure that, um, you know, when it should come off, when it should stay on. Some patients, it might stay on longer, like maybe 24 hours, or it might only be allowed to be off one hour a day or so forth. So um, again, make sure you're familiar with the order. On these slides, there are links here two different videos you can watch. So make sure you check them out. If you view your slide in um, slideshow format, you should be able to click those links and be able to check out those videos. Montgomery straps, they're used when frequent dressing changes are needed. Um, it allows dressings to be changed without trauma to the skin. It's an interesting look to addressing. Um, that ends uh, our talk about bandages. Now we're going to talk about respiratory care. So clients who have difficulty ventilating all areas of their lungs 
have impaired gas exchange or have perfusion problems may require oxygen therapy to prevent hypoxia. Okay, so hypoxia is low oxygen in their tissues. Oxygen is a medication. Okay, so remember that there has been a long-standing debate on whether oxygen is a treatment or a medication and do we need a doctor's order? The answer is that oxygen is a medication and we do need a doctor's order, okay? A doctor prescribes the concentration, the method of delivery, and the liter flow rate per minute, okay? So we don't just run and, um, well, sometimes we do just run and get a nasal cannula started on a patient who needs low-dose oxygen, but um, the doctor needs to order it. Okay, respiratory care key points. Respiratory rate decreases with age. Men are abdominal breathers. Women are thoracic breathers. Pain near or in the chest area will decrease the rate, will decrease the depth of respiration. So if there's any pain, you're not going to want to take a nice deep breath. So um, you're not going to breathe as deeply. It will decrease the depth. Anxiety increases the rate and the depth of respiration. So you're going to start breathing a little bit faster if you're feeling anxious. Smoking causes a higher respiratory rate. Literally, because you're trying to get air to fill in those um, alveoli in the lungs. So you're going to be breathing faster to try to bring in more oxygen because you're damaging your lung tissue. Drugs affect respiration. So I think about opioids. Opioids slow everything down. Okay. And we hear all the time about how celebrities have been found in hotels room, hotel rooms. Um, they've taken some kind of opioid and they mixed it with alcohol, which are both depressants and it will stop your respirations. So that's most frequently what happens. Injuries to the brain stem decreases the rate because in the brain stem is the medulla and inside the medulla is your respiratory center. So therefore, if anything happens to your brain stem, it will affect your respirations. Anemia or high altitude increases the rate. Okay, so with anemia, remember that your blood is low, so you don't have enough um, hemoglobin there. And in your hemoglobin, heme is the red blood is the is the blood part, and the globin part is the iron lives in that part of the blood, and with iron lives oxygen, okay? So people with low hemoglobins have low oxygen rates. So therefore, the anemia is causing them to work harder to try to breathe. Their oxygen is low. High altitudes, the air is thinner. So it's usually um, harder to breathe at high altitudes, Upright position allows the chest wall to expand more, expand more fully. We know that if your patient's ever having a problem breathing, you walk into the room. First thing you can do immediately is put the head of the bed up. Okay. Also, along with opioids, remember gen general anesthesia. It decreases the respiratory rate because you're in a nice um, sedative state. So... Um, 
you know, you're breathing slower. Amphetamines and cocaine increase your respiratory rate. Those are stimulants. So anything that's a stimulant is going to speed things up. Hypoxemia, okay? Inadequate levels of oxygen in the blood. So hypoxia was low oxygen in tissue. Hypoxemia is low oxygen in the blood itself. It can come from hypovolemia, which means that you need more fluid circulating, basically. Hypoventilation, which is that um, low drive to breathe um, for oxygen and interruption of arterial blood flow. So these are all reasons for hypoxemia. Hypovolemia, hypoventilation, and interruption of arterial blood flow. Some signs of hypoxemia, there are early signs and late signs. And it's important to try to, of course, catch these things in your patient in the early phases before it gets to late phases because there's more interventions we have to do to bring a patient back from problems when we catch it too late. So early phases of hypoxemia include restlessness, tachypnea, which is fast breathing, tachycardia, a fast heart rate, pallor, they're getting pale or their color just is off, elevated blood pressure, symptoms of respiratory distress. So this, this patient's fidgety. They just don't look right. They're, you know, color's not right. Heart rate's going, their breathing's going. You know something's wrong. Get a set of vital signs, begin to document and go from there. Late signs of hypoxemia. We're talking about low oxygen in the blood, confusion, and stupor. A stupor is basically a state that someone is not alert. Um, they might not have their eyes closed. They could be awake, but they're stuporous. It takes a lot of stimulation to get them to respond. So this is not good when your patients are stuporous. Um, Cyanosis, we know what that is. Bradypenia, slow breathing. Bradycardia, slow heart rate. Hypotension and cardiac dysrhythmia. So it's pretty much the opposite of everything in the early stage, okay? Um, cardiac dysrhythmias, you would find that out by doing an EKG on your patient or listening to the patient's apical rate. You can pick up a abnormal or irregular heartbeat, of course. All right. And so report and document your findings um, always. All right. Respiratory care. Key factors in assessment. The rate, the gender, pain, anxiety, smoking, impaired oxygen carrying capacity of the blood. Neurological injury, medications, and body position. Those are all key factors of assessment for respiratory care. Rate decreases with age. So as we age, there's not really a, a need to breathe very fast. I mean, really, you're on your way out depending on how old you are. So a lot of our uh, natural mechanisms begin to slow down. Men are more abdominal breathers, as mentioned before. Women are thoracic. So thoracic means we are chest breathers. 
Pain in the chest wall area may decrease the depth. We talked about a lot of these things. Upright positions allow the chest wall to expand. Okay, neuro injury to the brainstem, anemia with high altitudes. Okay, we talked about all that. All right, so pulse oximeter. It's a non-invasive measurement of the oxygen saturation of blood. The device has a clip-on sensor and can be attached to a finger, a toe, a nose, an earlobe, or a forehead. Values, values are normally 95 to 100%. So that's normal. Um, not everybody's going to be 100%. Some of you, if you checked your oxygen levels right now, you would not be 100% to your surprise. Um, again, there's a link here, so make sure you click on that. Values less than 91% require nursing intervention to assist the client to increase O2 levels. Stimulate the client, take a deep breath, put oxygen on if ordered. Values less than 86% indicate an emergency. So the first thing I do when I get a pulse ox on a patient's finger, if it's 93 or 94, I'll ask them to take a couple of nice, slow, deep breaths. It takes a few seconds, but you can see the pulse ox rise. Sometimes just getting someone up in the right position, like we said, Fowler's position and getting them to take a deep breath is um, all that's needed. Other times you need... Uh, to react very quickly. Like it says here, values less than 86% indicate an emergency. All right, so you want to get oxygen on the patient. Um, Life-threatening results start at levels less than 80%. So, um, you know, we're moving. Now, yes, you do need a, a doctor's order, but if your patient's oxygen level is this low and you do nothing about it, you will be in trouble for that. That's negligence. So every nurse knows that you need to get oxygen on your patient. So get the oxygen on the patient, call the doctor once things settle down, get a proper order. You know, you can tell them the condition of the patient prior because you're going to be documenting everything. And then tell them the condition of the patient after the oxygen has been on. You'll let them know how much you put them on. You'll let them know and then they can go ahead and take it from there and give you an official order. It's sort of kind of like the restraints we talked about. Um, you are allowed to get the restraint to restrain the patient, you know, and then you need to get the doctor's order within that first hour. So same thing with the oxygen. If the patient's condition calls for it, please don't waste time and wait and call the doctor and get an official order. Get the oxygen on the patient. If it were you, you would want uh, someone to act. Okay. So make sure you're always operating out of, you know, sound judgment. Everything's going to come back to, okay, what would a reasonable nurse do in this situation? So be a reasonable, good thinking nurse and get some oxygen on your patient. Okay. Oxygen therapy. Oxygen is a colorless, odorless gas necessary for life. So the oxygen in everyday air we breathe, there's only 21% oxygen in this air. Oxygen is a medication and it's prescribed by a doctor who specifies the concentration method of delivery and the flow rate. 
oxygen can be placed on the patient in an emergency situation without an order. And that's what we just talked about previously. Oxygen orders when applied in an emergency must be obtained as soon as possible. Okay, so like the restraint, you have an hour oxygen, you need to um, get the order pretty immediate. Oxygen safety, no smoking at all. It supports combustion. Just think years ago, patients were allowed to smoke in their rooms with oxygen running all up and down. It, goodness, the things we have learned, thank goodness. Um, <clears throat> so this is an education piece for your patients who are in the home not to smoke. Handle tanks appropriately. Most care um, at the neck. I think it's saying to... When you see an oxygen tank, you will see a thinner part at the top. So that's the neck of the tank. So you would take the most care with that part because that's where we're attaching um, tubes to. That's where we're opening the apparatus. So you would make sure that um, you're very careful with that part. Only use hospital approved outlets. Check for sparks and stay away. Um, stay on the black Check for sparks and stay on with a blackout. Okay, so um, avoid flammable products, oil, grease, or acetone. So all of these you're going to um, teach your patient. All right. Um, and so a lot of this is common sense. No open flames with oxygen. It'll be combustible. The whole place will blow and, you know, that wouldn't be too good. Okay, so oxygen administration. Oxygen can be supplied in several different ways. In acute care settings, it will be piped into the wall. And you can see here on slide 25, this is what the flow meter would look like. Um, this whole green apparatus is attached to the wall. Prior to this, it had nothing on it. Uh, but these are found in your supply room on the unit and the oxygen's coming right through the wall when you turn it on. This is an oxygen concentrator on slide 26. It basically concentrates the oxygen in the air. So it never runs out of oxygen. It's not like a tank where we have to change it. A tank is 100% oxygen. These concentrators for patients have to be on, you know, oxygen all day, 24 hours a day, day in and day out. They usually have a concentrator at the bedside. This is what we will see most often in the nursing home. Um, it's taking that 21% oxygen in the air and it's converting it and concentrating it all day long so it never runs out. Also, always... Um, it's available in a light portable canister. So when a patient leaves the room to go to breakfast or to the bathroom, wherever, this apparatus comes with them everywhere. All right. Um, so oxygen in the air is 21%. The other portion of air is 79% nitrogen. Just to let you know that. Okay. Slide 27 shows us what some nasal cannulas look like. They're used most frequently. They can be administered at rates of one to six liters per minute. It provides 24 to 40% of oxygen. Assess the patency of the tubes. 
use water-soluble lubricant in the patient's nose because their nose will get dried out. Humidify over four liters. What that means is, if you look back at the previous slide, um, we can put a bottle of distilled water there to keep the airways um, moist. Okay, our airways currently are moist now inside of our bodies. It's a nice, warm, moist environment. It's the same thing we want to do for the patient because they have cold oxygen blowing there. So they're getting all dried out. So we want to make sure that we have, um, you know, the water there to make sure they're getting it humidified. If they have anything over four liters per minute. Nasal cannula, um, make sure it's safe and comfortable because it can cause skin breakdown and become easily dislodged. That's why we use the lubricant right there, just in the beginning part of the patient's nose. COPD patients should never receive more than three liters per minute, excuse me, of oxygen. Okay. There's a special reason why COPD patients, um, don't receive more than that, and we will talk about that at a later time. Oxygen with humidification at rates over 4 liters per minute. Oxygen will be humidified to prevent drying of the nasal mucosa. We kind of talked about that. So that bottle you see there on slide 28, the bottle attached to the bottom, that's all distilled water. And the reason we use distilled and not tap is because distilled has been treated. The impurities have been taken out. You want to think of any bacteria going into your respiratory tract. We don't want that. Bacteria into the lungs can cause pneumonia. All right. So we want distilled water. We want the water that's been treated um, to go in and, and warm our airways. 29 shows a patient here. He has on a face mask. These type of apparatuses should be used um, when the patient needs 40 to 60% oxygen. All right, so these can be set to 5 to 8 liters per minute. It's more comfortable than a cannula, of course. You don't have anything hanging out of your nose or scraping your nose, so this is better. It's tolerated poorly in anxious clients. So meaning that they're going to be taking it off. Eating, drinking, and talking can be impaired. It will be impaired when you have a mask um, over top of your mouth. Um, let's see. Less than five liters a minute may not adequately flush CO2 from the mask. Need to order. Need an order to switch the client from a nasal cannula for meals and conversations. Okay, so if the patient is ordered a mask, um, we need a doctor's order to change them to nasal cannula so they're able to eat. Slide 30 shows us a picture of a partial rebreather mask. So these, um, the oxygen should be delivered between 6 and 11 liters per minute. And that provides up to 60 to 75% of oxygen. It has the same problem as simple mask. And then, it, as you can see, there's a reservoir bag that's attached. It should not be totally deflated when the patient breathes in. Non-rebreather mask, okay? It's similar to the rebreather, but this is a non-rebreather. And what um, these masks 
should deliver between 80 to 95 percent of oxygen. So you can see the patient's in a pretty bad way if they need to receive 80 to 90 percent of oxygen. We normally every day only breathe 21 percent of oxygen in the air. So if a patient is needing 80 to 90 percent of oxygen, there's a really serious process going on. Their condition is deteriorating. Okay, so this oxygen can be delivered as far as we are uh, setting it to on the wall where it's been pump, pumped in and piped in. We're setting it between 10 and 15 um, liters per minute. And again, all of these orders are ordered by the doctor. You never have to try to figure this out on your own. It's going to be what the patient needs, okay? And it's the same guidelines as the non-rebreather. And on slide 32, you can see the Venturi mask. This mask provides oxygen from 24 to 55%. Again, this can be 2 to 10 liters, anywhere from 2 to 10. Oxygen delivery is determined by the adapters in use. Okay. Safety precautions with oxygen. Place caution signs. Handle and store cylinders with caution. There's going to be a special place in whatever nursing home or hospital we go to. You're just not going to store empty uh, cylinders in the patient's rooms, as well as there's not going to be the full next one waiting. The patient, if ordered a cylinder, will only have that one until it runs out, and then we will get a new one and replace it. There's a link here for you to watch. No open flames or smoking around oxygen. Electric conditions may be in good working order. Okay, so check that electrical conditions. Um, they must be in good working order. And there's nothing faulty. Avoid static electricity. Avoid use of flammable, flammable materials. Oxygen toxicity. Can you believe it? You can um, get too much. Oxygen toxicity may result from high concentrations of oxygen for long duration of oxygen therapy and clients' uh, degree of lung disease. Symptoms, non-productive cough, nasal stuffiness, sternal pain, nausea and vomiting, headache, sore throat, and hypoventilation. Oxygen therapy over 50% or greater um, than 24 hours. This can form to toxicity, create toxicity. Treatment in the lowest level of oxygen necessary to maintain adequate O2 levels and decrease oxygen. Slide 35, oxygen-induced hypoventilation usually occurs in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease patients, COPD. This is the reason we talked about not turning the oxygen up above 2 or 3 liters. We said 3 liters. Um, usually it's 2 or 3 liters. We don't give COPD patients more than 3 liters of oxygen and on slide 35, this explains it. Okay, so they have chronic hypoxemia and hypercarbia, meaning they have too much carbon dioxide. And this is chronic. 
and chronic low oxygen in the blood and too much high um, carbon dioxide, which you are learning. Uh, well, no, that's another class. Um, hypercarbia, carbon dioxide is an acid. It's a gas, but it's an acid. High levels of oxygen delivery decreases the respiratory drive. Monitor for signs of respiratory depression. Decrease respiratory rate. And decrease level of consciousness. Treatment as per oxygen toxicity. Okay, so same things we would do for someone with toxicity. We would do for um, oxygen-induced hypoventilation. Respiratory treatments involve um, deep abdominal breathing, allows deep full breaths with little effort, assume a comfortable position, place hands or support pillow on the abdomen, breathe deeply through the nose, mouth, um, with mouth closed, concentrate on feeling the abdomen rise as far as possible, purse lips as if to whistle, to breathe out slowly. So these are ways we can teach our COPD patients that they can breathe. Uh, the purse-lipped breathing is one that you could see on the NCLEX. It's a way to help the patient blow off all of that extra CO2 I talked about and to really uh, be left behind with the oxygen, which is what they need. Respiratory treatments continued. Abdominal breathing, um, breathe out slowly and gently, making a slow whooshing sound without puffing out the cheeks. This purse lip breathing creates a resistance to air flowing out of the lungs. It increases pressure within the bronchi and minimizes collapse of smaller airways. All of this is a lot of pathophysiology that you have to kind of imagine in your mind what's happening with the lungs. Concentrate on exhaling using abdominal muscles, counting to seven for exhalation. Coughing will be spontaneous if there is congestion. Okay, so we want them to cough that congestion out of their lungs. This is an issue with patients with COPD. Um, we can always teach to increase fluids and so forth. The resistance of pursed lip breathing benefits people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD. Use this exercise whenever feeling short of breath and increase gradually to five to 10 minutes. So this is what you can help your patients do. They start feeling anxious. They're not getting enough air. Basically, COPD is not reversible. This is their course they're on and they will eventually die of some type of respiratory failure if they don't die of something else sooner. But this is a way that while they're going through their disease processes on days that are hard, um, you can help them to breathe and feel um, like they're getting oxygen into their lungs. Okay. The patient doesn't need to be encouraged to cough. They will cough if there's any congestion in there. Okay. So this method of breathing will induce coughing. Okay. And let's see here. All right, we will stop there. I've been talking long enough. So we went from the first slide all the way up through slide 37. 
Okay, so our next podcast will start on slide 38. All right, thank you, class. Be sure, as always, to ask if you have any questions.